Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. If you're a note taker, I would suggest you uh, grab your Bible because I think there's, if you have, if you use your Bible for taking notes, because I think there's some things you might actually want to see this morning um, and, and take notes about so you can um, remember and check out your, what your Bible says. I want to I pray. I know Andy just prayed, but let's, let's pray again. God, it, it, it is always truth that we seek when we engage with your word. And so, Father, I thank you that we have confidence in your word as, as true. God, I know how easy it is for us as teachers to get off track. And so, God, I pray that if in any way whatsoever, if something I say is incorrect, if it's not a reflection of truth, God, I trust that through your Spirit, every person who is here and every person who is listening will be guarded by your Spirit so that none of us are influenced the wrong way. Thank you, God, for the confidence that, that you will do that. God, I also pray that you will take truth, and as we read it and talk about it, that you will be invading our, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our spirits, and you'll be transforming us into the people you want us to be. I pray, God, then, that as we live truth, that we would live it in love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have, I've kept track of every single message that I have ever preached at Horizon Church, ever since the very first message, uh, before we even called Horizon Church. Uh, the very first message that I, uh, that I preached at Horizon Church way back on July 4th, 2004, when there was about 15 of us or so meeting in my backyard over on Muhlenberg Street. And because I keep, record, keep a track of my sermon, I can tell you that I have, as of today, I have preached 875 Sunday morning messages to Horizon Church. 875. Well, thank you. Uh, now, uh, because I also keep track, I actually checked yesterday. I checked my messages, and of the 66 books in the Bible, um, I have never preached from the books of Jude or Third John or two or three of the minor prophets, such as Zechariah and Nahum. Now, I have mentioned all of those in other messages, but I've never preached from them. And I also discovered that there is another book in the Bible that I have never preached from until today. And that book is Song of Songs. Uh, Do you know that book, Song of Songs? Now, it's not that I ignore that book. I actually like that book a lot. Uh, Sometimes I will take Donna's Bible, the Bible that Donna uses for devotions, and I will pull her bookmark out of wherever she's reading from, and I will slide that bookmark into the Song of Songs, hoping to inspire her. Now, uh, I don't know if you know that book, Song of Songs, and if you don't know it, then that will make no sense to you whatsoever. But hang in there, because this week and next week, uh, that book is going to be our go-to book, the Song of Songs. We're actually going to start this morning with the, the series um, that we have been on, um, and we're going to start a two-week look at this particular book, Song of Songs. Today ended up being what we're going to actually look at is kind of a, an overview. It's not what I intended when I started writing this sermon, but it ends up being kind of an overview of the book. And this book is a poem, and because it's a poem, 
We're going to start in the very first couple verses of the book, book, first book, uh, the book, first chapter of Song of Songs. Because it's a poem, I'm actually going to put on screen, I'm going to put it in the form of a poem um, so that you kind of get a flavor for, for the book itself. Now, for reasons that you will come to understand as we work our way through this book, I'm actually not going to read from the book I normally read from, from the translation I normally read from, the one that we have in our seats. Um, I'm, I'm going to read from a translation that is is most like the original Hebrew in which this book was read, was written. And you'll kind of see why as we work our way through this message. So here's what we're going to read. Uh, Song of Songs, chapter 1, the first four verses. And if you are looking at your own Bible and you're a note taker, I, I'd suggest you keep your Bible open after we read this because there's some things you may want to note, maybe not. So here's what it starts. Here's the title. Song of Songs, which is of Solomon. The Bride. Kiss me and cover me in kisses, for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. No wonder all the women love you. Take me with you and let's run away together. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, let me just say this about this book, and I would encourage you to go home and read it and um, see what you think. But as you read it, let me tell you just this. This is a really, really difficult book for translators. And for uh, Bible translators and Bible scholars, this is an extraordinarily difficult book to take from Hebrew and to put into English. And because it's difficult for them, it's also difficult for us, those who teach this book. Now, there are a couple of reasons for why this is such a difficult book, and some of these reasons we're going to talk about in a great deal of detail just in a couple of minutes. But let me give you two reasons why this book is so difficult, uh, just two very quick reasons. One, in this poem, there are various speakers. It's a poem, and people are speaking to each other. We know in this poem there's a woman, sometimes called the bride, Uh, There is a man, sometimes called the groom, and we know that there's also a chorus of women, and this chorus kind of provides commentary every once in a while for what's going on. So, if you're looking at your Bibles, or if you're looking at the screen, uh, who's the first speaker? The bride, she's the first one. That's why, now you need to know that in Hebrew, that's why it says there in brackets, I wrote down the bride, but you need to know when you're looking at your Bible and we're talking about this, in ancient Hebrew, it doesn't ever tell you who's speaking. It's not like in Hebrew, in brackets, it'll say the bride or the groom. You're never told. And the only reason that we know when we translate this into English, the only reason that we can figure out who is speaking is to figure it out, you, if you're a translator, you have to look at the, the nouns and the verbs and you have to figure out, are they masculine or are they feminine? And I know that some of you have learned, learned other languages to know that other languages use nouns and verbs, etc., in masculine and feminine form. And that's what you have to do. That's the only way you can read this book and to know who's speaking. Then the other thing you have to do is you have to look at the verb endings and you have to see, are, they, are the verbs singular where there's one person talking, or are they plural, where there's several people talking? But even with that, even with those hints in the verbs and in the nouns, 
um, there's still issues. For example, when I was studying this, I had about six different translations spread out in front of me, and I was comparing, you know, what those translations said, who's speaking when, etc. And even then, even with those hints, it's so difficult that all six of the translations translated it differently. And sometimes they disagreed about who stopped speaking and who started and whether it's one or So this is a challenge. Uh, you just simply need to know this book is a challenge. The other thing you need to know about languages, and this is true of all languages, that when you're talking, the tone of the speaker matters. The tone of the speaker can actually change the meaning. For example, I can say the exact same words, but my tone will tell you that I mean different things. For example, I can say, well, that was fun. Or I can say, well, that was fun. And obviously, those are two very different things, right? Thank you, Mike. Uh, one, one person caught that. Yeah, um, one, of them, one of those means that it really was fun. And one of those means that I was being sarcastic and it wasn't fun at all. Same words, but in completely opposite meanings. So the same is true in this poem, in this book. There are some phrases that can actually mean opposite things. And we have to figure out which of the two does it mean. Which means for the Hebrew translators, the people who are translating this, you have to know a language and you have to know a culture extremely well to be able to figure out which of the meanings are we talking about. Those are two things, among others, that make this book really, really hard to figure out. And because of that, when we're reading through it, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see the consequences. You'll see why sometimes I'm reading something and you're saying, well, my Bible says something completely different. You'll see the consequences of this. Now, to get started in the actual text, let me ask you a question. And this right now, this question, this question is getting to a difficulty in this book that's going to take some time to explain. But here's my question. When you read the opening line of this book, not the title, but when you read the opening line, kiss me and cover me with kisses, what does that sound like to you? That's not a trick question. <laughs> does it sound like there is a woman who wants to be kissed? Absolutely. And that's what it is. Without any doubt, with a whole lot of certainty, absolutely that's what's going on here. There's a bride. There is a woman who wants to be kissed. Now, I tell you that because there are people still today who will say, no, 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 that's not what this means. This book is actually an allegory. Have any of you ever heard that or been taught that? A, a couple of us have, that this is an allegory. Uh, there have been teachers and there have been scholars uh, who, who say that this entire book is not literal. It's not about two real people, the bride and the groom, that it's an allegory. Uh, Jewish scholars, for example, have said for centuries, they've said, well, this is an allegory about how much God, how passionately and how much God loves the people of Israel. And there are Christian scholars for centuries who have said, this is an allegory for how much Christ loves the church. In fact, for those of you of a certain age, you may actually remember a little ditty of a chorus that we sang. We used to sing this a lot growing up. His banner over me is love. Anybody remember that? I know you didn't recognize it from me singing, but yeah, we used to sing it. You know that that song comes from this book. 
That's literally comes from his book. And we sing it. We sing that song, his banner over me. We used to do motions, like even too, you know, even as a high school student, it's somewhat embarrassing. But we used to do motions to that song, his banner over me is love. And we sang that song. That song was written under the idea that this book is an allegory for Christ and his church. So we sang it, his banner over me is love. I know a lot of you have been taught that. I know that a lot of you believe that, but you were taught wrong. Um, how is that for blunt? Um, uh, you were taught wrong. So let me explain, and I think you'll come to agree with me eventually. This book is a beautiful description of sexual love between a young man and a young woman. And there are parts of this book, frankly, that are quite steamy and graphic. And for centuries, Bible scholars, both Jewish and Christian, have read this book, and they have found it very hard to believe that anything so earthy Anything so deeply human, they found it hard to believe that something so earthy and, and human could be included in Holy Scripture. Now, obviously, we lack the time to do a review of history and to talk about why this is so, why we believe, well, this could not be literal, it must be something else. We don't have the time to talk about it, but here's the bottom line. In the church, we believe this because we've been more influenced by Greek philosophy, guys like Plato, than we have an honest reading of the Bible. Greek philosophers like Plato and others believed and they taught that our bodies are prisons for our souls. And our bodies need to be freed from the prison of our soul if our souls are going to be saved. They believed and they taught that it's our bodies that are sinful. We sin in our bodies. And our souls, if we're going to be saved, our souls need to be freed from our bodies. Now, there's more to it than that, but that's kind of the bottom line, that it's our bodies that are sinful, which is why, by the way, this is why this Greek influence is why there are so, so, so many Christians who continue to think that it's our souls that go to heaven and live forever there without realizing that the Bible teaches that heaven is a redeemed earth, a redeemed creation, a very physical place. And so many don't know that because we believe the Greeks rather than the Bible. The story that the Bible tells is entirely different. The story that the Bible tells is that creation, this very physical, very real world, is good. It is good, and obviously, because of the fall, everything in creation now walks with a limp, but creation is good, and this physical world is good. That we have been embarrassed by and ashamed of sex, and that we've tried to hide the true meaning of the book, this, so obviously, this book that is meant to say that we ought to be able to have this joy-filled hallelujah for sexual love that we're embarrassed by. That says more about us than it does about God and the Bible. So here's the thing. We will discover in this book, and this is important, so remember this. This is going to be really significant. Here's the thing. This book, Song of Songs, is in a category of books in the Bible called wisdom literature or wisdom books. And there are, there are roughly four or five of them, wisdom books. There's uh, Job, there's uh, Proverbs, there's Ecclesiastes, which, by the way, has a whole lot in common with this book. And there's Psalms. Psalms is in this category, but really Psalms is in a category all by itself. 
And then there's Song of Songs. And those four books, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, all of these books have something really, really important in common that makes them wisdom literature. Each of these books has what we call a foil. And in literature, a foil is a character or an idea that is meant to be a kind of a contrast. If it's a Western, you got a guy in a white hat and a guy in a black hat. And one is a foil for the other. It's meant to be a contrast. And what it does, what a foil does, is allows you to see two opposite ideas. And in wisdom literature, you are meant to look at these two very opposite ideas, and you're supposed to decide, well, which one is right? Which of these two ideas is right? In Proverbs, the foil comes in the first eight chapters, and the foil is a seductress who tries to lure us away from the wisdom of God. In Job, the foil is the three friends who sit with him and try to convince Job of a certain understanding about God, which is very common, but flat out wrong. In Ecclesiastes, a book that has a whole lot in common with this book, the foil is the, you could say the foil is the world's view about life. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, here's the deal, I'm going to try to pursue everything that the world says matters. And I'm going to try to pursue everything that the world says brings you joy and happiness. And I will test the world's view and I will see, does it work? Does it bring me joy? Does it bring me satisfaction? And in the Song of Songs, the foil, almost exactly like Ecclesiastes, except it's more narrow, it's not the world's view about everything. In the Song of Songs, the foil is the world's view, the world's view of sex and sexuality. And you will see that this entire book is really a critique. It is meant to show us two very different views of sex and sexual love, the world's view and God's view. And we're supposed to say, so which one is best? This is exactly what wisdom literature is about. Two very contrasting views of God and God's world and the world in which we live. And wise readers are supposed to look at this wisdom literature and decide, well... Of the two, there's only one that ends well. So let's choose that one. So, that we as Christians have one whole book in the Bible that is all about sexual love should teach us to rid ourselves of the shame and embarrassment, and find a joyful hallelujah in God's good gift of sex. And for the world, that we have only one book in the Bible to sex and sexuality ought to teach us that sex is hardly the key to our existence. That it is not an idol to which we should bend the knee, that it is not God in a world that pays so much attention to sex that we now actually define human beings by it. It ought to teach us that it is not a joy that lasts eternally, that its pursuit will always bring you emptiness in the end, 
and that the catastrophic consequences of making sex an idol should be, but are not, should be plainly visible to everybody in our world. We ought to be able to see that as an idol, it's just empty. Now, back to the book itself. Let's look for a minute at just the title itself, Song of Songs. Now, by the way, um, that phrase, Song of Songs, different words, but if you think about it, those of you who know Ecclesiastes, you will know that Ecclesiastes begins very similarly. Vanity of vanities. That's how Ecclesiastes opens. In English, this is exactly, this is called a superlative in Hebrew. This is exactly like we would say, best of the best. What the title means is this is the song of songs. It's the best of songs. Now, it's the second half of the title where this starts to get a little bit tricky. There's a tradition, a pretty old tradition, um, that this book was written by Solomon and it almost certainly was not. The title can mean something like Song of Songs of Solomon, implying it was written by him. But the very best meaning of the title is something like Song of Songs Concerning Solomon. Because Solomon will be our foil Solomon is going to give us one view of sex, the world's view of sex. And I know, I know very well that this is turning upside down some long-held traditions. And when I was talking to Donna about this last night, dealing with a little bit of anxiety about my future job security, (laughs) Donna actually said to me, she said, well, you've already ruined the manger scene. For those of you who were here for Christmas a couple years ago, she said, you already ruined the manger scene, so you might as well just keep ruining things. And (laughs) so I shall. So here's the deal. Solomon is actually mentioned in this book. When you read it, you'll see that he's mentioned several times. But every single time that Solomon is mentioned, he is mentioned in the third person. In other words, it's never I or me, but always he or the king. There is never a single speech attributed to Solomon. And when Solomon is mentioned, as you will see, it is generally negative. Now, there are some scholars who believe that every single time Solomon is mentioned, it's negative. Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I don't know if everything they say is accurate. But I do believe I believe and I'm certain that almost every time Solomon is mentioned, it's negative. You will see this. And finally, if we're honest, here is what we know about Solomon from his account in the Bible. It's true, as we know, that Solomon has a very well-earned reputation for being an especially wise king. And we know he actually started out as a very godly king. But what we also know factually is that by the end of Solomon's reign, even among the Israelites, Solomon was thought of as a selfish, narcissistic, idol-worshiping oppressor. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, 
When Moses was giving the law to Israel, Moses actually said, I won't read this, but you can read it. Deuteronomy 17, started at verse 14. Deuter- Moses said, he said to the Israelites, there's going to come a day when you will have a king. You make sure that that king keeps a copy of this law and reads it daily. And then Moses gave several laws for the king, and he was he was specific. He said, number one, a king is never to collect lots of horses. And then Moses actually said, specifically, he said, don't go down to Egypt to buy horses. Now, that's an odd thing, you know, for those of us who love horses, like, well, geez, what's wrong with horses? Well, essentially, horses were kind of a stand-in for military power, and probably more than that, but at least that. So Moses said, number one, a king is never to collect lots of horses. Number two, Moses said, a king is never to enrich himself by collecting lots of gold and silver. And number three, he said, a king is never to collect women. Those are the laws for the king. Then you go to the story of Solomon in 1 Kings and you start reading the the story of Solomon and you find almost immediately Solomon Solomon collects horses, goes to Egypt to do so. You will find out that Solomon almost immediately starts collecting enormous amounts of gold and silver and you will find out that Solomon collected women, countless women. And by the end of his reign in 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon had completely abandoned God and was no longer loved by his people. Now, in this book, Song of Psalms, if this was a Western, there is a guy in the white hat, but it is not Solomon. Solomon's the foil, the guy in the black hat, And you will see that fits this story. It's true to who Solomon was in life. Let me prove this to you. For example, if you got your Bibles, maybe you want to look at this. Um, Go back to our scripture, verse 4. Verse 4 of what I read, chapter 1, reads this way. Take me with you and let, this is the bride speaking. Take me with you and let's run away together. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, as an aside, I told you the book's very difficult to translate. Some of you are looking at a translation that looks significantly different. I believe, honestly, that this is a translation that makes most sense. So you have a girl, the bride-to-be. She wants to run away with her groom-to-be. The groom will turn out to be a young man who probably is a shepherd, So question, when you want to run away, you want to run away from something, right? Or from someone. Well, from what does she want to run away? The next line. It's the first mention of Solomon, although he is not named. The king, this collector of women, women, has brought me into his chambers. She wants to run away from the king. Solomon, this collector of women. How many wives did he have? Do you remember from scripture how many wives? 700. How many concubines? 300. And he wants just one more. This one. This one. 
Sex is an appetite. You will always want more. Now, if you keep reading this book, you will see that this appetite of Solomon will appear several times in the book. If you're looking at your Bibles, flip over to chapter 6, verse 8. The young shepherd is speaking now to the woman he loves, and he says, let the king have his 60 queens and 80 concubines, young women without number, but I love only one. Chapter 8, verse 7, the bride is speaking, and she says, if a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would surely be scorned. Way back in 1964, there were some young British musicians with cool haircuts who agreed with what she said, although I don't know if they knew it or not. But they sang, I don't care too much for money, because money can't buy me love, can't buy me love. Well, Solomon thought it could. And so do many others. And she said, with all of his wealth, he can't buy mine. In almost the final verses of this book, Song of Songs, in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, these are the last words spoken by the young man. Solomon has a vineyard, and there are farmers who rent it from him, and each one pays a thousand silver coins. Solomon is welcome to his coins and the farmers to 200 as their share, for I have a vineyard of my own. And in case you're wondering, it is not vineyards we're talking about. Solomon can have his harem. I have just one. Now here's the thing. I honestly, I don't think you and I can appreciate I'm not sure it's possible for us to fully appreciate what is being said here if we fail to understand how women were generally viewed in the ancient world and how world-changing this book is. Even in the Mosaic Law, for example, in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, women, for the most part, in the Mosaic Law were viewed as property belonging to men. Commandment number 10, for example, the commandment against coveting says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his ox, his servants, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, it's a pretty good thing that your neighbor should not covet your wife. But it is not especially flattering to your wife that she is sandwiched between your house and your ox. But she is. And that was the world. And in this fallen world, God takes the world as is. And he works to make it better. And in this song of songs, this woman lives in the world where she is property. She will be controlled in this book, for example, in chapter 1. She will be controlled by her brothers who force her to work in a vineyard. In this book, she will be assaulted by night watchmen in chapter 5. In this book, she will almost, or maybe so, 
be claimed by a selfish king who collects women. So it's a good thing, isn't it? Thank God that we no longer live in a world where women are thought of as things to possess. Thank God we no longer live in a world where women are thought of as objects to be controlled and used, right? Thank God this is not us. So have you heard about Robbie Zacharias? Maybe you know Robbie, maybe you don't. Robbie Zacharias was certainly among the most influential Christian leaders of this generation. Rumors of inappropriate sexual behavior actually started to swirl around Ravi a couple years ago. Nobody believed them, of course, because after all, it's Ravi. He died on May 20, May 2020. But even before his death, there was at least one magazine, a prominent Christian magazine, that had heard ongoing accusations of sexual misconduct. And they started an investigation. And a very thorough and legitimate investigation was just completed. And I read the report, and it's horrific. Horrific. Ravi used numerous women, especially young women. Among other things, he told them that he was stressed and needed a release. And he told them they were God's gift to him. Sometimes he actually prayed with them when he was finished, thanking God, quote, for their flesh. This gift of a body and body parts to use up selfishly. Not all that different from Solomon, a long ago collector of women. On Facebook yesterday, I came across a post having to do with a ministry to women who've been assaulted. The only reason I saw the post is because two of my Facebook friends commented on it. Two of my friends. I don't have a ton of friends on Facebook, and two of them commented. And both of them, in their comments, said, quote, I was conceived during a rape. Two of my friends. Now, I know that rape is more than a crime of sexual passion, but it's at least that. Two of my friends have moms who are raped. If there are two, I suspect there are more. We haven't come very far from Solomon's day, have we? This collector of women. Again, on Facebook, just yesterday, I saw this post. I saw this picture. I know you can't read it. You don't have to read it. There's a guy named Jackson Katz who does lectures on sexual assault. And he described his lecture this way. He says, whenever I'm lecturing to a group of men and women, I will go to a chalkboard, draw a line down the middle. On the left-hand side, I will write men or the symbol for men. And on the right, I will write women or the symbol for women. And then he says, I will ask the men, what steps do you take on a daily basis to protect yourself from being sexually assaulted? And he says, generally, the answer from the men is, well, none. I don't think about it. That's the answer on the left. Then he asks the women the same question. What steps do you take on a daily basis to protect yourselves from being sexually assaulted? 
And then the list starts. I know you can't read the list. But I've had many conversations with women and wives and daughters to know that for a lot of women, this is a daily thought. What must I do? But thank God, thank God we have come so far from the ancient world that you viewed women as a thing to be owned and used. We have not wandered very far, have we? That's the world's view of sex. We have not wandered very far from a narcissistic king who collected women. The horror of being collected by a king is all through the lines and all throughout the margins of this book. And Solomon is the world's view of sex. It is at least, it is at least the consequences, the very real consequences, the horrific consequences of the world's view of sex. And I'm often astonished that we're so blind and do not see. But then, thank God, truly thank God, that there is this poem. Ancient though it is, where a young woman is loved genuinely and passionately and exclusively by a young man. There's a theme in the book, and she will say it. It's in her mouth three times. She will say these words three times. In chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 7, she will sing, My lover is mine, and I am his. Do you hear how different this is than the world's view when she sings, my lover is mine. He is mine, and I am his. And they will, these two young lovers, they will go on to a wedding, a bride and a groom day. They will delight in each other's bodies, and they will say so. They'll be separated at times and they will express their longing for each other. They will miss hearing each other's voices. And when they finally hear the other's voice, they will know that voice from all others. They will tease each other. They will boast. They will make vows. They will talk a bit about their own imperfect bodies. And with a smile, they will say, and yet you love me anyway. They will be friends. These two young lovers, they will be friends, these two people, partners. You know, in many ways, this ancient book is actually about redemption. It's about the restoration of what had been broken. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2 last week, we discovered God's ideal, his plan to make us male and female 
and we discovered that she was to be by his side and he was to be by hers. Partners, they were meant to be ideally. Partners together, naked and unashamed. They were made to care for the garden and to have dominion together. Partners together in ruling over this good earth. But then there was the terrible fall in Genesis chapter 3, and there were the ugly consequences of that fall, not the punishment, the consequences. And she will hear these words. He will rule over you. It's not the way it was supposed to be. It's the way it often is. He will rule over you, taking what he wants with his eyes, with his hands, and throwing the Wester away. And then there comes Jesus, the kingdom bringer, who came to restore life on this planet as God meant it to be, and slowly, ever so slowly, the kingdom is being restored. There was a man named Brian Keenan. On April 11th, 1986, Brian Keenan was taken hostage in Beirut, Lebanon. He was one of several taken. He's written a couple of books. His treatment... His torture by the Islamic Jihad was just horrific. For four and a half years, he was chained, blindfolded, beaten, tortured, until eventually, four and a half years later, August 24th, 1990, the Irish government negotiated his release and he was freed. During that captivity, somehow, at some point, he came to be able to read the Bible And there was one particular book he has written that was especially meaningful in leading him to Christ. Do you know the book? Well, I wouldn't ask if it wasn't this one. Song of Songs. Not at all because he came to see it as an allegory of Christ's love for the church, but because of its beauty its tenderness. As he was being beaten, in those moments, when he was being beaten and tortured, he came to know and he came to believe because of this book. Tenderness still exists and it is out there somewhere. When he was being treated as an object to be tortured and used to make a point on video screens, This ancient love poem reminded him, I'm a person. I'm a human being. I am made by God to be so. When he was being punched, he remembered that there were moments in this world of tender touch. And God wants it to be so. 
When he was being brutally hurt as the victim of hatred, he remembered that in this world there is love and longing and joy. And Jesus wants it to be so. This ancient book reminded Brian that even in the darkness, there is light. And in this book, Brian saw the light and came to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us, we who live in a world that is so good but so broken, I pray, God, that you will help us every day to hang on to the truth that you have given us some incredible gifts. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in him we see the light. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website of horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.